0: Good morning, everybody. It is a joy to start the new year together and to open the Word of God together. So if you have your Bible, if you would, please turn with me to the book of Hebrews. We're going to be taking a look at chapter 5, verse 11, all the way down through chapter 6, verse 9, and that's on page 1003 in the Blue Pew Bible. If you didn't bring your Bible this morning, I'd, I'd like you to open that up and at least follow along. Well, to provide a little continuity, um, we're going to take up where Mike left off probably about a month ago, I think, in chapter 5 and verse 10. So I'm going to pick it up in chapter 5 and verse 11, and as I mentioned, we'll work our way down through chapter 6 and some issues in that text. As you're returning to that uh, text, I want to share with you a part of an email we got from a friend many years ago. Uh, She said this, My best friend here is pregnant, and the guy kicked her out, and she's just so hurt. She calls me crying, saying that she just can't handle it all, and humanly, there isn't a whole lot of comforting I can say. The only comforting things that I can think to say are about God, and that he is there for her, and being in control, and being near to the brokenhearted, which I do say, and she appreciates them because she is religious somewhat. I don't really want anything to do with God, and I don't need him as comfort for me, but when someone else is in need, I have to have something comforting or encouraging to say, and I don't know where else to turn them to. It seems a little ironic to me that the only help I can seem to find for her is to turn her to God. I guess I don't know that God is, or I guess I do know that God is out there, even though I don't know about the whole gospel and Jesus stuff. Or if God is that involved in our lives, I don't know. I guess I am at the point again where I am taking stock of things and trying to figure out what I want to do and what will bring me satisfaction in life. I'm still not inclined to turn to God. I don't think that it is satisfying and I don't want that life. Anyhow, I don't know why I'm even writing to you and telling you all of this. What you're going to say, except that you hope that I will turn back to God, which I don't want to do. And what makes this especially sad is that this individual once professed faith in Christ. In fact, to everyone that knew her, she seemed like a very godly woman. Even the women that she lived with, uh, the Christian women that she shared a house with, would have said that she is a solid believer. Every week she was at church, every Bible study she would go to, the singles group, she was there. She prayed publicly publicly. She witnessed to her family. Her Bible looked as though it had been well used. She was even sent out overseas to serve as a missionary to help a missionary family out there on another continent. And she served for a year in pretty difficult circumstances. And so at the end of all of that, to hear her say, I don't know about the whole gospel and Jesus stuff, or if God is that involved in our lives, is utterly stunning. You know, we've all had experiences like this with people in our lives that have seemingly just gone apostate. And our mind reels to have a category to put that in, to have an understanding of what exactly is going on. And oftentimes, in an effort to make sense of this biblically, this sort of thing, people will point to a passage like the one here in Hebrews and say that she lost her salvation. They would say that she's an example of what the text is talking about. A believer who got close and who was in the fold but then fell away and lost their salvation. And there are a thousand other stories like it that have caused people to question the security of the believer. Usually it begins with an anecdotal testimony. And then the search is off and on to find a proof text which validates their understanding of what happened. However, that answer is not biblical at all, because that is certainly not what this particular text intends. In fact, there aren't any verses in scripture which say that a believer can lose their salvation. A far better explanation, or a more biblical one, is that a person like my friend was never saved to begin with. They went out from us, John says, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they are not all of us. She is like the one that Jesus describes in Matthew 13, who received the seed on stony places, who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. yet has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. This is how the word of God answers the questions that I raised. Now, it's especially ironic that Hebrews 6 is often used to question the security of a believer, because as we saw a few weeks ago, when Mike taught through chapters 4 and 5, the absolute security of the believer is bound up in the perfect work of our great high priest. His sacrifice is once for all time. It perfectly saves those for whom it was made. And as we just heard Bob praying a few moments ago, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. The security of our salvation is bound up in Christ, not in us. So if this warning in Hebrews 6 is not about a believer losing their salvation, then what exactly is it saying? Well, let's take a look, starting back at verse 11 of chapter 5. About this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case who, of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Now you recall that Hebrews was written to a Jewish community of professing believers who were facing severe persecution It's important to understand this, that there are three different uh, types of people that are mentioned here in the book of Hebrews or that the author has in view. And it's not much different than what a pastor would assume about a congregation that he is preaching to. The first group that you had were the Hebrew Christians. They were the Jews that had come to faith in Christ. They were redeemed people. And secondly, you have Hebrew non-Christians who were intellectually convinced. You could call these the fence-sitters. And lastly, you have Hebrew non-Christians who were not convinced. They were just your basic unbelievers who happened to be Jews. I know we often think of the Bible as being written to believers only, when in fact it has much to say to non-believers as well. Hebrews, in particular, is peppered with these powerful evangelistic warnings to these unbelievers. In fact, chapter 6 marks the third such warning. There's one in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. There's one in chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. And then there's a fourth warning given in chapter 10, verses 26 through 31. So the author assumes that there are tares amongst the wheat, And here we have a warning to the Hebrew fence-sitters, to the unbelieving in the congregation. And verse 11 identifies them as those who, you'll see, have become dull of hearing. That's an interesting way to refer to somebody. But what he wants to do is press on them, the need to move on from the elementary teachings about the Christ, the Messiah in the Old Testament. He wants them to move on to an understanding of who Jesus is In the New Testament. And he wants to discuss the depths of Christ's priesthood. In light of the Melchizedek priesthood. And the supremacy of the priesthood of Christ. Over the Melchizedek priesthood. Which is supreme over the Aaronic priesthood. He wants to talk about these things. The intricacies of the atonement. He started with that in the first part of chapter 5. And he has much to say. But he can't. Because these people are dull of hearing. They are spiritually dull. In fact, I would argue that they're not yet believers. The language he uses is very specific. Jesus, you might recall, spoke of the same thing. He quotes Isaiah in Matthew 13. He says, In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, You will keep on hearing, but you will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but you will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. And clearly Jesus is referring to unbelievers when he says that. With their eyes they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them. Jesus quoting Isaiah applies it to the Jewish multitude, specifically to the leaders, And the author of Hebrews is saying the exact same thing. They've become dull. They've become basically inoculated to the truth. They've had bits and pieces of it for so long that it no longer shocks them, the message of the gospel. Their dullness was keeping them from understanding the truth of the gospel. And it's interesting, he says, even though, because by this time, they ought to have been teachers. They had been around Judaism in the Old Testament their entire lives. And yet, despite how much they had heard, how much they had learned, they needed to start all over again. They needed to go back to the, learn the ABCs, the elementary principles, he says, of the oracles of God, the Old Testament. They needed to go back to the picture book of the Old Testament because they didn't even have a grasp on the basics You know, when you have children, the first books you get them are not thick books of literature. You don't hand them a Bible. You give them a picture book so that they can understand and start making connections and start learning. And eventually they progress to books with words and then books with more words and then books with even more words and no pictures at all. Well, the same thing is true here. And he's saying they need to go back to the picture book of the Old Testament because they did not even have a grasp on the basics. In fact, they missed the entire point because they did not see whom? Jesus. If you study the Old Testament and read the Old Testament and you come out of it with a religion that does not recognize Jesus as the Messiah and the King, you need to start all over again. No matter how learned you are, you've missed the whole point. Galatians 3.23, the law was our tutor to do what? To bring us to Christ. That we might be justified by faith, but after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. You see, everything in the Old Testament tutors us to Christ. Through the pictures, through the types Through the direct revelation, everything points to Christ. Jesus said to the unbelieving Jews in his day, the teachers, he said, you search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. And remember when Nicodemus met him in the garden? And he said, you need to be born again. And Nicodemus was confused He was confused because Jesus was basically saying to him, you need to go back and rethink the entirety of what you've learned in the Old Testament. Because if it didn't lead you to me and a true understanding of me, then you've missed the whole point. You have a mind made dull. According to 2 Corinthians 3, you have a veil shrouding your understanding." which is another way of saying you're you're simply not redeemed. So the point here is that these people to whom he was warning are not even yet Christians. The contrast is not between a mature believer and an immature believer. I've heard it taught that way many times. That's not the context. That's not what he's saying. The contrast here is between a believer and an unbeliever. Verse 13. Verse 13. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. Now the word child literally means an infant. And he's saying that those who partake only of a milk understanding, which is to say those who remain in the picture books, those who remain dull, those who read the Old Testament with a veil over their eyes, those who are still in the flesh, they're not saved, they're not born again. The word of righteousness here refers to the message about how to be made right with God, and they have no skill in this area. It is the message that we need the very righteousness of God to be saved. We need Christ's righteousness imputed, laid to our account by grace through faith. And so the difference here between the mature person in this context and the infant is a contrast between a believer and an unbeliever. It's not a contrast between two different types of believers. And it's important to understand that. I'm, I'm driving the point home because you'll fall apart in the rest of chapter six if you don't understand that truth. Other places in scripture speak of the maturity of a Christian and the infancy of a Christian and make that point, but this isn't one of them. You see, these people ought to be teachers of the gospel. Teachers of how to be right with God. Teachers of how to be righteous in the sight of God through faith, faith in Christ. And even though they had the Old Testament, they had the pictures, they had everything that pointed to Christ, their understanding should have been built firmly on those things. And even though they had heard the gospel and the fulfillment of what the Old Testament prophesied in pictures, yet the author here is saying they need to go back to the basics, to the tutor, to the ABCs, to come to Christ. Notice verse 14. That contrast is being pressed even further. He says, But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish evil from good. And the mature here is talking about the believer. The solid food is the meat understanding or the deep things of the Spirit of God. It is the word of righteousness, the gospel of Christ and Him crucified. It is for those who are mature, literally brought to their end, that word means, or finished or completed. What is the end of Old Testament religion? Christianity. What is the end of the Old Covenant? The new covenant. What is a a completed Jew? We would say they're a Christian. So to be mature in this context is to be saved. And so he's leveling this charge right at the unbelieving Jews. They had heard the gospel repeatedly, yet they had not responded in faith. They were in danger of becoming inoculated to it where it would have no effect on them familiarity had dulled the force of it. You know, that's a fear of any pastor that's preaching the gospel to you, that there might be people out there who hear the truth of it, who sing the truth of it, who are praying and hearing the truth of it, and yet they're just getting bits and bits and bits, and eventually they become dull to it if they're not redeemed. And it loses that shock. It loses that Wonder that God can forgive sinners. It becomes so familiarity or so familiar, that it's contemptuous to them. And believers have to worry about this as well. But here the familiarity had dulled the force of it, and that's the context leading into the warning in chapter six. Take a look at what it says in verse one. It begins with "Therefore," which throws us back into everything he's been talking about previously. Stop being dull of hearing. Stop operating on a milk understanding. Stop being infantile and understanding about good and evil. Leave the elementary doctrine, it says, of the ABCs of the old covenant. Press on to maturity. Come to the full revelation and blessing of the new covenant. That term leaving is interesting as it's translated here. Uh, Let us leave. Aphiemi in the original, it means to forsake or to put away, or to let alone, or disregard, or put off. And it refers to total detachment, total separation. It's interesting, Paul uses the exact same term in reference to divorce in 1 Corinthians 7. The idea is to be done with one thing in order to move on to another thing. Frequently, it's used in the New Testament to refer to the forgiveness of sins. Our sins are put away. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. So the apostle is saying, forsaking and abandoning the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity. Now does that sound shocking to you? Think about what I just said. Abandon the elementary teaching about the Christ and press on to maturity. Think about this for a minute. How do we become more mature if we abandon the elementary teaching about Christ? The Apostle Paul said, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So those who take the position that this text is referring to Christians pressing on to maturity in the faith, it's an interesting problem it creates do Christians become more spiritually mature by detaching themselves from the basic teaching about Jesus? Absolutely not. We are never to leave the basics or the elementary teachings of the gospel. That is a foundation of all the apostles' teaching. His work on the cross is a very theme of Hebrews, for that matter. So what exactly is the author of Hebrews saying? Well, look carefully at the text. He says, leaving the elementary doctrine of Christ. The elementary doctrine here literally means the first or the beginning word, the archais lagon. So to become mature, they need to abandon the first or the beginning word about the Christ, the Messiah. There's a definite article in the original before the word Christ. It's referring to a specific Christ. He's speaking of the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ, and the Hebrew understanding of him in the Old Testament. If he intended to mean Jesus post-resurrection, he would have said so. In fact, he uses the proper name for Jesus 22 times in the book of Hebrews, even in verse 20 of this chapter. But here the context is dealing with unbelieving Jews, abandoning the first word about the Messiah as they understood him. Abandoning the first word about the anointed one. Abandoning the first word about the Christ. He says, therefore leaving, forsaking the elementary teaching about the Christ. Those incomplete pictures of the Messiah in the Old Testament. Let us press on to maturity and believe in the resurrected Jesus. Let us press on to perfection, to completeness. You know, it's just like the modern-day Jews who cling to the Messiah of the Old Testament without realizing he already came in the person of Jesus Christ. They use the word Messiah, and they think that he is yet to come. But they have a different Messiah because Jesus has already come. The true Messiah has already come. And when we evangelize unbelieving Jews, we point them to Jesus as the fulfillment of those promises in the Old Testament. This is what Paul did and Peter and everyone else. This is exactly what the author of Hebrews is doing. He's saying, leave the pictures and the promises of Christ in the Old Testament and press on to maturity through faith in Jesus. Come and realize the completeness of all those promises in him. They needed to move on from their elementary understanding of who the Messiah is. They needed to recognize the resurrected Christ as the fulfillment of those things. That's the point. And to do that, it's best to show the structure God built around the foundation of the old covenant. And we see that in the rest of verse 1 where he says not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgments. Now some have taken these to be Christian ordinances, and to some degree they are. But the foundation is the old covenant. There are six features that are listed here. None of them are Christian truths in and of themselves. We don't abandon these things to move on to maturity. These are all Old Testament concepts, but they are incomplete. To be sure, these pointed to the gospel, but they are not themselves part of the gospel. Look at the text. They're called to leave the ABCs of repentance from dead works, and they are called to move on To the gospel teaching of repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance from dead works won't save you. It's a good start. There to leave the ABCs of faith toward God. For the gospel teaching of faith in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. You don't come to God apart from Christ. Having faith in God means nothing to an Old Testament Jew apart from Christ. You must have Jesus. They are to leave the ABCs of the ceremonial washings. You know, from the time you start reading all the way back in Genesis, and especially in Leviticus where the law comes into play, and you have washing after washing after washing after washing. They are many. They are repeated. And yet we are cleansed by the blood of Christ once for all. They're to leave the ABCs of the ceremonial washings for the Cleansing of the soul by the word, by Christ. They are to leave the ABCs of the laying on of hands on the sacrifice. For laying hold of the Lamb of God by faith. Jesus is infinitely better. The whole book of Hebrews is about the supremacy of Christ over everything. Over everything that came before it. They are to leave the ABCs of the resurrection of the dead. For the full and glorious resurrection unto life. The Old Testament understanding of that was incomplete. And they are to leave the ABCs of eternal judgment. For the rich and full truth of judgment and rewards is revealed in the new covenant through faith in Christ. That's the idea. And then verse 3 says, and this we will do if God permits. It's a Lord willing We'll move on from all of this, God willing, because only God can bring life to the spiritually dead. If God permits, if He opens their eyes, they will leave that foundation and move on to Christ. If God permits and regenerates their hearts, they will be able to receive the spiritual food of a mature person. If God permits, they will go on to spiritual completeness, maturity. God willing. Take a look at the warning that he gives. And this is what causes a lot of of problems for some folks. In verses 4 through 6, he says, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of God and the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. I want to reason through each of these statements one at a time. Think with me on this. Is it possible for someone to be enlightened and yet not be a Christian? It is possible. That term enlightened literally means to come to an intellectual perception of the truth. The Greek Old Testament uses it to refer to someone who has been given light by knowledge or teaching. It means to be spiritually aware, to be instructed in something. Angelic beings are highly enlightened. Both holy angels and fallen. Let me give you a couple examples. It has no connotation of belief or disbelief, the term enlightened. In Matthew 4 and verse 15, says, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. Same word. They were enlightened. And those who were sitting in the land and the shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So the people of Galilee were enlightened by Jesus' preaching. His teaching had spread throughout the whole region. They learned. And yet, even though almost every single person was enlightened, most of them did not repent and believe. Peter gives a similar warning to our text in the context of false teachers. Listen to what he says. For if they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. Why? Because they are enlightened. They know the truth about who Christ is. But knowing the truth and having that information apart from faith in Christ only serves to condemn It is better not to be enlightened and not to know the gospel than it is to know it and flat out reject it. Of course, it's best to know it and believe it. But the worst thing you can do is reject revelation and knowledge of Christ once you've been enlightened. You're more accountable. And this is the danger I believe these fence-sitting Jews were in. This is the same danger any unbeliever is in who sits under gospel preaching. If they become dull of hearing and hardened by the truth and ambivalent or inoculated to the gospel, their end is far worse than if they had never even heard the message. Listen to the sobering warning Jesus gave to the Pharisees. In John 9, 41, Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin, but since you say we see, your sin remains. Being enlightened does not save you. It only makes you more accountable if you continue with your unbelief. And so these people had once been enlightened. Take a look at the next phrase. So they were enlightened and they, who have tasted the heavenly gift. They had a knowledge of the truth and more than that, they tasted the heavenly gift. Does this mean they were saved or born again or redeemed? No. What is the heavenly gift? Well, the greatest heavenly gift is Christ himself. 2 Corinthians 9.15 refers to Jesus as God's indescribable gift. And no doubt, it also refers to the salvation which is wrought through him. So in what way would I say an unbeliever tasted of the heavenly gift? Well, they can do so in a variety of ways. These people had tasted the ministry of Jesus Christ. They had tasted his life, his words, his fellowship, his person, They were around him. They were exposed to these things. They sampled those things. But notice carefully, our text does not say they feasted on the heavenly gift, or that they lived by it, or that they ate it. They merely tasted it. They sampled it. It's interesting, that same term is used in Matthew 27. When Jesus was on the cross, they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall, and after tasting it, he was unable to drink. unwilling to drink. Did he consume the wine mixed with gall? No, he did not. Did he make it part of himself by consuming it? No. And you do not become a Christian merely by tasting Christ, by sampling him. You become a Christian by consuming him and making him your lifeblood. When Mike taught through John 6, it was a Wonderful, wonderful time because Jesus from beginning to end is talking about the being the bread that comes down out of heaven, being the bread of life. And he said, if you eat that bread, you will live forever. And the point of John six is unmistakable. You do not get life by merely tasting or sampling. You live by ingesting. He says you have to eat his flesh. Unless he becomes a part of you, there is no life in you. Unless you eat the heavenly gift, he does not abide in you. Tasting is not enough. So take a look at the last phrase of verse 4. They're intellectually enlightened, but not believing. They're tasters and samplers of the heavenly gift, but his life remains outside of them. And then the last part of verse 4 says, They have shared in the Holy Spirit. Now, surely this has to be talking about a believer, right? I don't believe so. The term shared here refers to an association with someone. It literally means one who shares. It does not mean they were possessed by the Holy Spirit. It simply means they were around when the Holy Spirit was at work. That same word is used in Luke chapter 5 and verse 7 of fishermen. They signaled to their partners, it's the same term, in the other boat for them to come and help them. Their partners, their associates. same word is also used in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 9, referring to the angels. They're referred to there, or it's translated there as companions. So the idea here is that these Hebrews shared in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. How did they do that? Well, they heard the word of God. They had seen the many miracles wrought through the power of the Holy Spirit. Some of them may have actually been healed or had some of the bread and fish when Jesus fed the 5,000. And they were in the company of believers who were Holy Spirit and dwelt. The people whom the Holy Spirit moves around freely within the church. They associated with the church to the point that they were being persecuted with them. So in many ways, they were made partakers of the Holy Spirit, but they were not saved. We also see the same idea explicitly taught in the Old Testament, right? The Spirit of God empowered Saul. Was Saul a believer? Spirit of God spoke through Balaam, who was evil and accursed. Was Balaam redeemed? He spoke through the donkey, and no one is going to say the donkey was redeemed. The Spirit of God empowered wicked kings to win battles, and he spoke through them directly to rebuke godly kings. I I think of Pharaoh Necho of Egypt. He was given a dream by God and then went and rebuked Jehoiakim for not believing the prophets. The Holy Spirit speaking through an unbelieving wicked king to rebuke (laughs) Jehoiakim for not believing the prophets. They're simply partaking in a sense of associating with the Holy Spirit. We know for certain that people have shared in the ministry of the Holy Spirit and yet remain unsaved. I mean, all of the miracles that were done during the time of Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit, where people were healed and everything else and went away unbelieving, they partook of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's ministry primarily is in the Word being proclaimed. There are people sitting there hearing the Word of God in every pew on every Sunday, that may not be redeemed, but they are sharing in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And just for clarity's sake, let me ask you this. Do we say that a believer has shared in the Holy Spirit? Or do we say that they are permanently indwelt by him? There's a difference. The Bible actually never speaks of a Christian associating with the Holy Spirit in regard to salvation. This is something... Much more intimate than that. When it talks about the Holy Spirit in relation to a person that is saved, it is always a much more intimate terminology that is used. We are indwelt by him. We are controlled by him. So these people shared in the Holy Spirit. He invaded their lives through the ministry of Christ and his followers. And even now people associate with the ministry of the church and the word, but they remain unredeemed. Look at verse 5. He gives another another argument here, and they have tasted the goodness of of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. And again, you have this idea of tasting, sampling, not actually ingesting it and making it a part of them. Idiomatically, the term means to be exposed to or to run up against. So can a person taste the good word of God and not be saved? Yes. Yes. Can a person be exposed to and sample and run up against the word of God and remain unforgiven? Yes. In fact, they may even like to read the Bible or hear it proclaimed. Remember, the seed that falls on the rocky places immediately rejoices in the word, but it has no root. They receive the word with joy. They bear no fruit. They're an unbeliever. I also think of Herod. Do you remember how he reacted to John the Baptist preaching? I mean, he was afraid of John, Scripture says, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. Remarkable, a pagan, unredeemed, evil man enjoyed listening to John the Baptist preach. Ezekiel describes this very thing. Just listen carefully. As for you, son of man, your fellow citizens who talk about you by the walls and then the doorways of the houses speak to one another, each to his brother, saying, Come now and hear what the message is which comes from the Lord. They come to you as people come and sit before you as my people and hear your words, but they do not do them. For they do the lustful desires expressed by their mouth, and their heart goes after gain. Behold, you are to them like a sensual song by one who has a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument for they hear your words, but they do not practice them. Merely enjoying or sampling the good word of God is not enough. And I fear that the pews of a lot of professing evangelical churches are full of people who go for various reasons, who actually like hearing the word and hearing it preached, and they listen to the word as a sensual song by the one who has a beautiful voice like Pastor Mike and plays well on an instrument, but they remain condemned in their sin because they have not repented and believed on the Lord Jesus. These Hebrews were merely auditors. They were testers, tasters. You know, they were not like the prophet Jeremiah. Remember, he said, your words were found and I ate them. And your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I have been called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. Just as you must eat Christ, so you must eat his word as well, making it a part of you. Now notice the last phrase of verse 5. It says, they also have tasted the powers of the age to come. The age to come is the future kingdom of Christ, depending on your eschatology. But no one's going to dispute that that age is where he reigns in glory. The powers that will characterize that age are the miracles that we saw during the first advent of Christ. So these people had been exposed to the same miraculous power that will come when Jesus brings his kingdom. They tasted it. They saw the signs. They saw the wonders, saw the miracles. They had a taste of the future age to come. They had been exposed to an immense amount of light, and yet they were not saved. Now, in all of these things we've seen so far, I want you to notice something carefully. There is no reference here to salvation. There is no mention of justification, of sanctification, of the new birth, of regeneration. It doesn't say they were born again. It does not clearly describe those who have experienced the saving grace of God, as one commentator said that this text does. But on the contrary, none of the normal terminology for salvation is even used in this passage. In fact, none of the terms here are used elsewhere to refer to salvation. The reason is because the author is not addressing believers. He's not talking about losing salvation, but rather he's warning them about not coming to salvation in the first place. In other words, he's saying this, you have had the Old Testament revelation with all the pictures and the signs and the types, and even now you have been enlightened with the teaching of what those things meant. You have seen and tasted Christ and salvation in the lives of others. You've partaken of what the Holy Spirit was doing in your midst. You've heard the good word of God and preached, heard it preached and explained. And you've seen miracle after miracle and the danger of rejection at this point is severe. If they turn back now, there is no hope. Why? Verse 6, because once they have had all of that light and been given all of that grace, verse 6 says, and then have fallen away, it is impossible, picking it up from verse 4, to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying once again, the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Why is it impossible to renew them again to repentance? What does that mean? It's impossible to renew them again to that place of repentance because the time for repentance and grace is over. It's the final straw. If you have been given that much light given that much privilege, given the message, and it has been attested to by miracles and signs and wonders, and you still do not believe, it is impossible for you to be saved. If after all of that, you still reject Jesus, you are blaspheming the work of the Holy Spirit, you are attributing all of the light that the Spirit has given to the evil one you are equating his miracle powers to Satan and the verdict of the courtroom of your mind, you say that it is not to be believed. Those who have been graced with that kind of light and then to have fallen away, it is impossible, the text says, to renew them again to repentance. Repentance. It is impossible to bring them to a place of repentance because the only message that will do that is the very gospel message that they completely reject and have fallen away from. It's not talking about a believer losing their salvation. It's a fence-sitter who is given tremendous light, tremendous privilege, and one who is in danger of eternal damnation. There comes a point of rejection after which it becomes impossible to repent. Let me give you an example of that later in the book of Hebrews. Why don't you flip to chapter 12 and verse 16? Hebrews 12:16. See to it that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. It's a terrifying thing. He sought repentance with tears, but it was too late. I think that's an illustration of what we see in chapter 6. It very clearly says in chapter 6, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, to bring them to that point where they would bow the knee and embrace Christ, turn from their sin, because their heart has become too hard. Only God knows where that point is. But it's clear throughout scripture there are people who rejected and rejected and rejected and rejected and then were sealed in their fates. And let me just say to you, if you can repent this morning, if your heart is tender toward the message of the gospel, if there is conviction for sin, you have much to be thankful for. If you do not know Jesus, you need to get right with him this very moment. Don't wait until tomorrow. Don't wait until you leave this building. The warning is for you. It's a good warning for everybody the seriousness of salvation and the seriousness of eternal life. It may very well be that when you seek to repent later, it's too late. That's the urgency of what he's saying, that's the urgency of the warning. And by their rejection, the apostle here says that they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. After all the messages about Christ, after all the work of the Holy Spirit attesting to that message, after all the light they had been given, their conclusion is that Jesus is not who he claimed to be. Their conclusion is that the Son of God deserved to be crucified. And with their conclusion... They seal their fate. And worse than that, they put the Son of God to open shame. They hold him up to contempt for people to look at him with contempt. When a person chooses against Christ, one commentator says this, and turns back to the way of the world and the sovereignty of his own will and the fleeting pleasures of earth, he says in effect that these are worth more than Christ is worth. They're worth more than the love of Christ and the wisdom of Christ and the power of Christ and all that God promises to be for us in Christ. And when a person says that, it is the same thing as saying, I agree with those people who crucified Jesus. That's what the warning here is against. Now, just briefly, the illustration in the next few verses makes this interpretation of it very clear. Look at verse 7. He gives an illustration to drive the point home. He says, For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. The ground here is a person or a group of people. Also, it's the same as in the parable of the sower that Jesus gave in Matthew 13. The rain which often falls on it is the enlightenment, the Holy Spirit, the word of God, the powers, the wonders, the testimony of Christ. And those things keep falling and falling and falling on the ground week after week, night after night, day after day. And the ground that takes that in, drinks in the rain that often falls on it, brings forth vegetation. That's fruit. That's eternal life. And it's useful for those whose sake it was stilled. They receive a blessing from God. But, he says, and there is a, he introduces a different kind of soil. If it yields thorns and thistles, in other words, if enlightenment, if the Holy Spirit, if the word, if miracles, if all of that produces no fruit but yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed and it ends up being burned. So there are two different kinds of soil here. One bears fruit and life and receives a blessing from God. The other receives the same rain and brings forth deadness and thorns and thistles and will be burned. Two different kinds of soil. It's not talking about a field that once bore fruit but is now worthless. It's not talking about a believer who lost their salvation. The fields were different from the start. This warning is not about losing salvation. It's about rejecting it to begin with. And I love it in verse 9. He says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved. And now he's addressing the people in the congregation who are redeemed. In your case, those of you who are redeemed, beloved. Beloved. We feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. We are certain of better things for you that accompany salvation. He switches audiences, and now he's addressing the believers in the congregation with a word of reassurance and a word of comfort. You know, anytime a man of God stands behind the pulpit and proclaims the word of God to a group of people, it most certainly is in his heart that everyone would believe the message and the truth about the gospel and be saved. That's the whole purpose of being called to the ministry. That's the whole purpose of the word of God. That's the whole purpose of the Old Testament. It's a tutor to bring us to Christ. It's the whole reason why this church exists. It's to proclaim the excellencies of Christ who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. It's to proclaim his supremacy over everything. He's better than anything and everything. His sacrifice can conquer your sin and will if you repent and believe. And I pray that there are none here this morning who don't know Christ. But I pray more than that if there are that you would repent and believe, repent of your sin, turn to him, run to him. Because if you don't, a certain judgment awaits. Let's go ahead and pray.